Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. We're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, Given the events of the last couple weeks, um, including, of course, the deaths of U.S. service members in Afghanistan, um, and really since April 14th, when the hard date for this withdrawal was announced by the Biden administration, many people in the country are losing what little threads of faith uh, they had left, uh, not just in the partisan ideology of the U.S. government, not just because they disagree with Joe Biden politically or or his administration politically, or, or perhaps disagreed with the Trump administration politically, um, but in the basic competence of our leaders and our elite class. And to talk about the domestic impact of these still unfolding events on what I think is the larger crisis in which America finds itself reminiscent of the 1970s, but I think worse in several ways. Um, But this larger crisis of trust that America finds itself in, I actually brought back Emily Jashinsky. So Emily is a woman who wears many hats. She is the culture editor over at The Federalist, um, including hosting Radio Hour over there. She works with Young Americans for Freedom, and you may know her from her stint filling in on Hill TV's Rising, which is an independent news program that probes the possibility of a populist alliance across political ideologies. So I think she's one of the best people that we could possibly talk to about what the long-term trust impacts of the last several weeks about what we've been watching on our TVs uh, is really going to be. So welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me back, Ines. So... You and I um, are always citing to this one pupil, right, that shows that trust in every single American institution, uh, whether that's Congress or the president or whether it's big business or tech companies, uh, whether it's Hollywood, basically, um, whether it's any any or even even religion and churches, organized religion, um, every single one of those numbers is well below 50 percent and has been for quite some time. Um, but the, the two bright spots on that poll were always small business and the military. We now find ourselves in a situation where, uh, due to a combination of this global pandemic and decisions made uh, by, by the leadership class and by the political class, um, small business is in extremely rough shape I think the word decimated could be used. And now we find ourselves watching as the chop chop brass of the military have made apparently not just bad, but completely incompetent calls in this withdrawal. Again, regardless of what your ideology is, regardless of whether you think uh, we should have or should not have withdrawn from Afghanistan, it seems to me that there's sort of a, a bipartisan failure here by ideological failure here of the top brass to actually conduct this operation um, in a way that kept our service members alive, that, you know, was orderly, that allowed our Afghan allies to get out in time. I mean, what is the impact? What are those little numbers on the pupil going to do with regard to the military, which was essentially the last institution, at least the leadership of the military, the last institution that really brought left and right together in terms of, of actually having some trust in that institution. And as you say, it's it's not merely about the numbers being low. It's about the tra- trajectory. And that's, I think, where things get particularly um, alarming is to see how quickly this is like with the media, for instance, this is something that's happened over time. But when you look at certain institutions, the dip has happened really quickly and doesn't seem to be reversing in any sort of like really quick way as well. And that it was just like an anomaly for a couple of years. That's not what's happening. We're seeing like pretty rapid acceleration of distrust following you know, this this longer pattern of declining distrust. And so when it happens really quickly, uh, that's very, very destabilizing. And to your point about the military, it's absolutely a bipartisan failure. The public recognizes that. It's not as though the public m- blames Biden. It's not as though the public blames just George W. Bush. Um, the public blames our leaders. And this is so easy to forget because our political memories are so short because news cycles are so fast. But a huge I mean, Donald Trump in 2015 on the the primary campaign trail was talking constantly about forever wars. He was talking constantly 
about uh, the, the overextension of the military in the Middle East. This was a huge element of his campaign. And it's a big reason that he was so successful in that primary because he could, and I should say in the general, because he can pin that as somebody outside the political establishment very clearly. Um, and by the way, as somebody who was skeptical of the war in Iraq, he could pin that very clearly on every single one of his opponents in 2015 in the primary and in 2016 when it came to Hillary Clinton. That was actually just one of those things that just made him so palatable um, and gave him credibility. And when we think about how that's a statement on the public's interpretation of institutional failure, it's important because the public's interpretation of, of failure is not as partisan as a lot of people think it is. It's like Donald Trump. And that's not to say like the American public was like 90% in favor of Donald Trump. We know that's not the case. We know that there are a lot of people that do still have very firm partisan ideologies that either meant they supported Donald Trump firmly or they supported Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or whoever it is very firmly. But there's a big chunk of the public that is just utterly sick of the political establishment. And what the political establishment is not prepared to deal with is that they are right. They are right. It is actually good news. This is the sort of the, the, the contrarian perspective, but it's important. It is good news that public trust in all of these institutions is low. It would be terrifying if public trust in these institutions was high um, it, because all of these institutions deserve our distrust. They, are, they have failed the public. They have failed their consumers and their voters and their constituents over and over and over again. They've done it in major ways. In some cases, like the military, for instance, they've done it in ways that have been um, repeated and they've gone on trajectories that have not been course corrected. They, they haven't undergone necessary course corrections over and over and over again. Um, in the case of the military, it's happening with people's children's ch children, their, their husbands, their wives, their, their brothers and sisters. Um, it's, it would be terrifying to me if trust in these institutions was high. So, but what the political establishment is not prepared to deal with, like they can, they can whine um, about institutional distrust as much as they want, but they're not in any position to say, that they're culpable for it, right? It's it's the racist rubes who are turning to white nationalism um, and voting for Donald Trump because the factory town moved, um, and that what the that's the that's the elite narrative, and elites are not prepared to take any of the blame um, whatsoever. Not, I mean, the the blame is is squarely on the deplorables. It's squarely on the partisan Republicans, and it. They're, they're in no position to really internalize. And we saw this after Donald Trump was election was elected, like the week after he was elected, we saw suddenly this like introspection in the media. You had Dean Bequette of the New York Times executive editor saying, you know, we don't get religion. We need to do a better job. The New York Times of 2021 has undergone no course correction whatsoever. That lasted for about a week. And uh, I think we see the same thing over and over with other institutions. Um, they are so immersed in their they're so high in their own supply that the, it's they're incapable of serious introspection beyond the gesture and that's dangerous i mean i think that's why these events will have such a big domestic impact right because the conventional wisdom is of course that you know for americans don't vote on foreign policy um and I, but i i think the story here for the average American may not be that they, not that they don't care about what's happening halfway around the world, but that they have, they prioritize other problems. I think that's right, prioritize domestic problems. But this is such a clear instance of, again, the, the decision-making, the people who are in charge of the decision-making in this country, not having any contact with, with reality. They said that, uh, the, the Afghan army would hold out for potentially months. Um, instead, they held out for days. They got rid of, and the, the decision that's being criticized all over even mainstream networks now is they they let Bagram Air, Air Base go before they had properly evacuated people, you know, which, which left us stuck with Kabul Airport, which is apparently very, very difficult to defend. Um, we just just the other day we had additional rockets from ISIS being leveled at the airport in the attempt to stop 
planes from getting off the runway. We have American citizens stuck out somewhere in the city or even in the country without the ability to safely move to the airport. I mean, regardless, again, it's like another level of of disillusionment, right? It's it's one level of disillusionment, I think, that drove Donald Trump's election when people realize that the elite hate them and don't care about certain problems that are are really affecting Americans' lives. It's a whole nother level of disillusionment when you realize the people who say that they are expert have made such terrible errors. And as you say, in this case, errors that cost American lives. Um, and and I, the, the, the crazy thing is, I don't think anyone believes that there's going to be any accountability for these decisions. I mean, do you think that, first of all, do you think there will be accountability? We have Trump calling for um, the firing of generals, um, a call which is not broadcast throughout the mainstream media and is now completely stifled on social media because the former president is banned from those places or, or ignored in the case of, of the mainstream media. Um, but do you think that there will be any kind of accountability? So that's question one for these kinds of just flat out bad decisions. Forget, forget about ideology, forget about Trump versus Biden, Republicans versus Democrats, um, even left versus right in this country, which is a real and substantive divide that I don't want to gloss over. But even if you lay aside all of those things, I mean, just incompetence that costs American lives in a, a serious country would come with consequences. You know, so one, do you think they will face any consequences? And two, do you think the average American has any confidence that they will face some consequences for these decisions? No, I don't think the average, I'll, I'll answer number two first. No, um, absolutely not. Because that speaks to the faith in the institutions, right? That the institutions, nobody trusts the institutions to course correct because they have failed at that time and again. And it's one thing if institutions are sort of flexible and do correct errors, um, That that's another, like they, they can be sort of endemic, they can have endemic failure, but if they are at the same time also able to course correct, that's a totally different thing. But what I think the, the reason that distrust that distrust is so high in these institutions is, is because they don't. They just keep failing. They just keep making these same bad decisions over and over and over again. Um, and it's not as though they make one error, change it. That's not what's happening. And so, no, I don't think anybody has any confidence in this. And I think they're right because, to answer question number one, accountability is impossible. So I think there might actually be some sort of superficial um, gesture towards accountability, like some sort of political decision that uh, <clears throat> Joe Biden makes. Maybe he fires General Milley. Maybe he fires somebody high profile. Maybe somebody resigns. Maybe it's Lloyd Austin. Maybe there is some some major. I, I expect that there will um, be some gesture. You know, there will there will be some sort of superficial, um, symbolic attempt to to look like the Biden administration is taking things to account. On the other hand, sort of to, to just dwell on the political level for a moment, uh, it's entirely possible there won't be because Joe Biden is obstinate. And you can actually sort of debate the merits of that. To some extent, it's defensible that Joe Biden has refused to, uh, he's just like absolutely refused to accept any like real substantive failure because he's clinging to that uh, defense, which again is is somewhat reasonable, that like there's no way to get out of uh, a chaotic war without chaos, um, and that some to some extent this was inevitable. He's completely wrong to say that he was locked into it, but he really, I mean, the administration, even when being pressed on the Americans trapped in Afghanistan, says they keep saying like those people have had every opportunity to get out for months, like they they are not accepting any criticism really for the most part they are they are not so it's yeah, this possible. drives me crazy they, they think that americans in afghanistan just people working for the embassy contractors mm -hmm. and so on uh they should have anticipated the speed with which the afghan army collapsed and right. the taliban came into kabul but the u.s government did not Oh, right? no. that's essentially their position is is these random people who are stuck in afghanistan should have made a better call than the Joint Chiefs of Staff right. and the President. 
which is an absurd position. Well, remember what General Milley said last week. He saw absolutely nothing to indicate that Kabul would fall within 11 days. So they then expect the people who were trapped in Afghanistan to be interpreting this mixed message, this mixed messaging in in any other way. I mean, it's it's absurd. It's absurd. Um, And that but that does speak to the possibility that Biden doesn't even um, take a step towards accepting any responsibility because he is very and this is like you hear this from some of the leaks. This becomes clear from some of the leaks that Joe Biden actually was like very, very entrenched in his decision that this is a war we are on the path to get out of. And there's nothing that's going to stop me from doing it. I'm not going to delay it. I'm not going to take this advice or that advice that would look like an escalation or would look like a delay because we're getting out. Um, And so I think to that extent, it's possible that, you know, he doesn't even take the step of accepting failure. But again, accountability here is impossible, right? Because this is, um, accountability is impossible. This has been going on for 20 plus years. There's nobody really in the military that would have made substantially different decisions. And it's not to say there's nobody, but like most of the military establishment. Among the the top, the the people in the Pentagon is what you mean, just to clarify. I think there are probably plenty of people. And we saw, of course, we saw, um, I think a battalion commander, his career ruined for publicly criticizing the decisions that were made by those above him in the chain of command, which, you know, I understand why there have to be consequences within a military environment. That's not a free speech environment. It's not a, you know, you don't, you don't get to have all kinds of, of the, the rights while in the context of being in the uniform that Americans take for granted. It's part of the necessary, um, you know, structure of the military. But the fact that the people who made these decisions you know, may suffer absolutely no consequences while this guy, this guy is the only person to have his career ruined over this, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and it, I guess, let me, let me ask you this. Where do we go from here? Because it seems like there is a combination of boiling anger out there at the people who aren't suffering any consequences for making these terrible decisions. And on the flip side, a, a very sort of dispiriting, uh, you know, detachment. It's, it is very difficult for Americans to watch. I think I know it is difficult for me to watch scenes that look like the end of empire, mm-hmm. right? Um, things that, that make us wonder whether those, those assumptions, especially for us nineties kids, right? Those assumptions that we've, we've had baked in to our politics, which is that the U S will remain a preeminent global power that we will, remain the most powerful military force on the planet um, that even that we can suffer bad precedents or stupid decisions um, in a way that other countries can't because we have enormous wealth and enormous ability to project power. Um, Those assumptions are suffering um, daily. It seems like, Uh, you know, where, where, I guess, where does American politics uh, where do American politics go from here? And, you know, uh, is, is is there any kind of light at the end of this? As you say, it's a good thing that Americans don't trust their institutions because their institutions don't deserve trust. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you know, when you don't have any gatekeepers, you don't have any institutions, the, the stability that Americans have counted on um, really since the close of World War II and, and, you know, before that as well, but particularly since 1945, that stability seems like it's, it's over and perhaps American. And I think it's not unusual now among, I wouldn't think that I'm the only person speculating as to whether American power is now, it's definitely waning and whether it'll wane below other great global powers. And we might find ourselves once again, um, you know, at the mercy of a great power politics that isn't ours. Yeah. And you just mentioned something that I've been thinking about a lot um, for the the 90s kids. Um, I I think so. I was nine on 9-11. I think I was nine. I was in third grade. And what I remember. So obviously, like 9-11 aside, I, I have memories from that day, like all of us do. But what I remember in the aftermath was this intense uh, swelling of American pride. 
And that's a really important thing to remember because in, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, there was public support for invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. There was a, a very reasonable and a very reasonable sort of like hunger for vengeance and um, I think the, the military establishment and the political establishment was naive. And I think to some extent also, not even just naive, was uh, taking advantage of that and was, was taking advantage of the opportunity to you know, exert the United States' military might for a number of reasons. And it, we know that you know, we, we could have whatever winning would look like in Afghanistan and Iraq. We know the American military, if we had like committed the full capability of the American military to either of those con conflicts, we know what would have happened. But that was not what we wanted to do. What we wanted to do was flex um, and, you know, drive these various forces out of those countries. Um, and we thought that we could do it um, with, you know, this, this sort of, we, we thought we didn't need to like devote our entire military to either of these efforts, that it would come much more easily than it did. And that we, we were naive to the problems that would come afterwards. Um, we were naive to the problems that the, the sectarian conflicts, we were naive to all of that. Um, and in some cases it wasn't that we were naive. It was that it was, it was hubris. Um, and it's, it's interesting for me to look back though, on those days in the, the sort of immediate wake of September 11th. And to think of that level of, of pride and solidarity and patriotism, um, and then sort of use that as a benchmark with where we are on the, the 20th anniversary, which is coming up in just you know a, a few weeks or less than that, actually like 10 days, um, to, to use those as sort of benchmarks or bookends and to think about where just patriotism and love of country has gone. I agree with you that people don't vote on foreign policy, but it does really inform their sort of sense of um, the country's standing and success. And I think the most important metric for um, our success as a country is just the daily lives of most of our people, right? Like how, what is the level of quality of the daily lives of most of our people? Where is it heading? Um, and, you know, when you're awash in, when we're all basically addicted to dopamine, dopamine devices that were basically invented by this country, that were enabled by this country and have taken over our daily lives uh, because of, you know, various antitrust issues and cultural issues, and we can have a whole conversation with that, you look back on the way we communicated in September of 2001 and in the aftermath, the way that we communicate now, the way that we lived then and the way that we live now, imagine you're younger than us, Inez, um, and you're, you're just coming into college or graduating college and getting into the workforce what do you think of this country? I, I, seriously, like the people that are about to enter the sort of corridors of power and start pulling those levers, they don't, they don't remember that. that. Do they even remember like the Toby Keith songs, <laughs> like boot in your ass, like patriotism? Do they have any memory of that? What do, what's their um, conception like of American greatness? I have no idea, um, but it's, it's sort of scary. And the, where do we go from here point? It's like, well, where do we deserve to go? Where, how are we equipped to go forward? Who is in, this is why I say accountability is impossible because who could hold any, who has the credibility to hold any of our military leaders accountable? Seriously, like who, who does? Is it the, I mean, is it like Barbara Lee, you know, someone who voted against the Iraq war, like the AUMF, is it Ron Paul? I mean, the, like nobody in our political establishment, um, really has the credibility to hold anybody accountable. And there seems to be the media in the last two weeks and the entire political establishment has shown absolutely no interest in, or I guess like intellectual capacity to, to process these failures. It's like, we're returning to the, you know, neocon, like, right. Like, isn't it, isn't it an interesting thing how the, the neoconservatives in the, the media establishment and the Democratic Party establishment have just been 
back to their their usual business. Um, and this is the only thing that Biden is really getting criticized on, <laughs> like um, in in the course of his presidency. So there's nobody in any position to hold anybody accountable, and there's nobody coming up the ranks that can make the course correction. I would say, with the exception perhaps of the media, where there's a splintering in the substackification, um, which you can argue whether or not that's a good trend, but. I mean, in in the military, in our politics, I don't know. There's a lot of reason for pessimism. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you bring up the memory of post 9-11 era. And, and so, as you know, I grew up in Palo Alto and I have nothing but good things to say about Palo Alto always. <laughs> uh, no, so I have very bad things to say about Palo Alto. But one, one of the things, and I, I think this, I'm bringing this up not just because it's a personal reminiscence, but because I think it's very relevant to the point you're making. Um in Palo Alto, there really wasn't a patriotic uh, response after 9-11. In, in fact, the day after 9-11, the local paper um, in Palo Alto, their headline story was that Muslims in the United States might feel re- fear, uh, fear reprisals mm. after 9-11. Now, first of all, that turned out to the great credit of the United States, that turned out to be a vastly overblown fear. There were no widespread reprisals against American Muslims after 9-11. Um, but the fact that the day after this level of attack had hit the homeland, uh, and, and I think it's relevant because Palo Alto is now in charge, right? Mm-hmm. The elites in Palo Alto are fundamentally globalist. And by that, I don't mean that, I don't mean it in a crude sense of like, Alex uh, Jones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's not a conspiracy style um, charge. It's it's an accurate one in the sense that they they consider themselves post nation state. Yeah, they don't really consider themselves truly American. Um, they don't, and I'm not even now talking about all the leftist tropes about America's bad and evil. But th- there's even a detachment from some of that, and already was after 9-11 in Palo Alto, whereas I think the rest of the country did experience this, and, and the polls showed this, it experienced this incredible surge of patriotism and solidarity. Um, George W. Bush, I think, had what, like a, an 89 or 90% approval rating yeah. after 9-11. Now, you know, what that administration and the following administrations did with that probably has a lot to do with why, for example, we find ourselves in a, in a time where virtually no president can crack, you know, 55% approval rating from either party um, is, is an interesting thing in itself. But I almost feel like that reaction from Palo Alto uh, to slip immediately back into the narrative to really not have that, even that momentary patriotic impulse to pull together is very... Um, is kind of where we all find ourselves now or in different ways. And, and actually I'd like to ask you about the, the flip side, right? If, if the detachment from patriotism from the left comes from this vision that, or, or this ideology that America is in fact not worth celebrating, that we are sexist, racist, terrible country, mm-hmm. um, we're stamped from the beginning in the words of Ibram Kendi. And then before the current wokes, you had, of course, the Chomsky left, right? That uh, saw America as an evil imperialist power. Um, on the flip side, on the right, as American empire and power become more synonymous and more reflective of where we are at home, meaning that these same woke elites are in charge, um, and their values are what we are projecting into the world, which America is still very good at at culturally projecting things into the world. I don't think that there's any, eventually we could lose that power, but for now, um, American cultural projection of power is, you know, I- incredible, but we're now using that power to do things that the right at home despises, right? And in fact, the majority at home, uh, uh, including independents and some Democrats despise, right? Um, the, the symbolism of running the uh, rainbow flag outside mm-hmm. of our embassy in Kabul is hard to ignore, Um what happens to patriotism on the right as America essentially becomes more identified both domestically and abroad with this woke ideology? I mean, that's already happening. I mean, the, the French um, 
the French president Emmanuel Macron already refers to yes. this stuff as essentially American imperialism, right? Like this woke ideology is coming in from America, but the, the French are not the only country to feel that way. How does the American right respond when America isn't what they would consider America anymore? Uh, the, the ideas that they were patriotic about, um, let's say after 9-11 or, or going back in the decades, those ideas are not just, uh, and perhaps not even a minority among Americans, but are completely absent from any powerful institutions in this country. Yeah. And, you know, this is not just about America. And I think this is about what uh, technology and the consequential globalization that it brings with it is doing to people in Western civilization period. And I think it is really important to reflect on what you talked about in Palo Alto right after 9-11, because California, as Michael Schellenberger has been documenting, by the way, is a, an environmentalist who is not at all aligned with the right, except on um, you know combating climate skepticism and leftist sort of poverty initiatives, has been has been documenting. He has a new book out um, documenting this, but he has been showing how California is basically the canary in the coal mine and really demonstrated uh, the logical conclu conclusion of progressive progressive governance and progressive values. And by when I say progressive, I mean the progressive movement as a vehicle for what is essentially like post-structuralism. And Macron is right. I mean, French, the, the French are not necessarily blameless in the exportation of <laughs> post-structuralism. Um, and, it, you know, we don't necessarily recognize it as such because these conversations have always been relegated to the realm of the abstract sort of academic ivory tower uh, debate, but they're not anymore, right? Like these are, this is not laughable territory the way that people used to, you know, laugh at Fox and Friends for running campus craziness segments. That turned out to be actually one of the most important stories in our politics. Um, and it was laughed off by the political establishment as the sort of fever dreams of crazed boomers for years and years and years. And here we are. Um, and these ideas are having very, very, very real consequences. There's a, a controversy this week over a teacher in California, I think in Newport, um, who replaced the American flag in her classroom with the pride flag and, uh, you know, offered her students the opportunity to pledge allegiance to the pride flag instead of the American flag. And again, isolated, uh, perhaps, but the worldview is not isolated at all. It is not isolated at all. And um, where I think sometimes conservatives go wrong is in assuming that it's you know, on the one hand, we want to say this is this has consumed our institutions. And on the other hand, we want to say, but it doesn't represent the population. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's correct that it doesn't broadly represent the entire population now. Um, but it does represent a bigger chunk of the population than we want to realize. Um, we're talking about school teachers. Um, we're not talking about somebody who's running a media institution right now. This is a this is a teacher, sixth grade teacher, I think. Um, and this is, you know, the way that this is all sort of flowed through social media means that it's flowing through the minds of people that are not just in the corridors of power. Um, it's like anybody with a bachelor's degree has been sub subjected to this um, BS. And if they've come out of a college in the last 15 years, and it's only gotten worse in the last five to 10 years. So it, it's, it's probably more widespread than we realize. And it's also probably at least the sort of idea of America as a, a place, as you just mentioned, that's increasingly responsible for exporting negatives. Or one thing that's like a really common sentiment among people outside Washington, D.C. is that like you spent all of this blood and treasure on these foreign wars and we have immense poverty in certain certain regions of this country. We have drug addiction and that has just consumed certain areas of this country. We have um, joblessness, homelessness, all of these different crises. Um, and when people look at failed wars, um, they see also something that makes them very angry, which is that, you know, little attention has been paid to their own problems. And if attention is paid to those problems, it's to smear them as deplorables and racists and bigots. So I don't think we've like in the political establishment, the media establishment fully grasp the scale 
of, um, and you'd think, by the way, the host of Celebrity Apprentice being elected president of the United States over a former secretary of state would have really like hammered this home. <laughs> but it did the opposite. It, 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 the, the elites and the establishment dug their heels in uh, to the trenches further and further and further to the point where they're now even more blind to the problem than they were before. So it, I don't think we fully grasp the scale, but also the nature of uh, disillusionment with the country. And I don't think we're really going to understand it until, um, you know, for the next few years, as we see the contours of this start, um, I guess, becoming clearer in our politics, because this is, I, I really agree with your assessment that what's happened over the last couple of weeks in Afghanistan um, is going to shape that immensely. And I'll just add one more thing, which is I was watching a frontline that I believe aired last year, which was a 20 year retrospective on the war in Iraq told from the perspective of Iraqis. And one of them says, um, a probably 35 year old man says, America's, America made two big mistakes in Iraq. The first was getting in and the second was getting out. And the, that actually, I think, probably represents a lot of Americans' perspectives on actually what's happened in Afghanistan over the last few weeks. Um, and what's interesting about that is it starts, it's, it's right at the start of the wars, and it's right at the end of the wars. Um, and it's, those are major failures. And, it, it, you know, it's where we are. If, if we agree, because there is, I think, this broad disillusionment that you're talking about, and there are really two flavors of it, because you, you, you uh, are referencing a left that looks abroad at these failures and essentially sees the failure of nation building at home, right, um, in, in terms of not offering, for example, you know, universal health care or um, other expensive social safety net solutions, quote unquote, um, and then a right that sees that failure, I think, as, as sort of um, a reason to doubt our own ability, um, our own, uh, really like who we are as Americans, given how far the rot has proceeded into our institutions, um, and even into the military now, which I think was a really hard pill for the right to swallow, just like it was hard to, to a hard pill to swallow that the intelligence services in this country might have played strongly domestically, right? Um, that they, they might have essentially uh, been weaponized against their own people. That was really hard, particularly for the right to swallow, right? Because the right was the, the law and order, the, um, at least they had uh, enormous amount of faith in, in police and intelligence services in the military. Um, that was very much a part of the American right. And now I think a lot of people really feel sort of disconnected and disillusioned that even these institutions that were not sort of the, the media or the university professors or people or institutions that we would expect over time, um, to, to lean left that, that these, um, intelligence services or, or law enforcement agencies or military agencies had um, sort of slipped into the same dominant narrative. That was very depressing for the right. But you've pointed out, so you've spent a lot of your um, time in the last year filling in on Rising over at Hill TV, which is essentially a show that attempts to probe the possibility, let's say, <laughs> of a uh, left-right populist alliance. It's a show that gives voice to a populist left that is in many ways, I don't want to say anti-woke, but certainly thinks that uh, the party has taken a wrong turn in focusing so much on woke cultural issues um, and pronouns and so forth, rather than on, on socialist spending projects. Um, and then on, on the flip side, um, the conservative chair, which you, you held for some time um, is, is one that's very skeptical of Reaganism or of, of the traditional three-legged stool, let's say post the end of cold war and thinks that the right in this country has made some serious, serious mistakes. Is there any hope that these two uh, groups of, of American voters um, who are both, I think, equally disillusioned with the leadership class um, and, and with the American elite and both, I think, clearly see the problems with the American elite or are they are they too fundamentally culturally at odds with each other over exactly some of these questions that 
are un unresolvable in the same way that I think we fear a lot of things in our politics feel unresolvable. Yeah, you and I have talked about this. Um, I'm of the opinion that I'm of the opinion that when you have uh, a left, and there are this is increasingly true of some parts of the the right as well, um, and what some may call it the integralist new right. Um, you have to agree that there's something about the country worth preserving, and. I don't see that at all on the populist left. Uh, I see it less and less on the populist right every day. Um, and I think the populist right is at least more convinced that there's something uh, that, there, that it, the system can be fixed. Um, but there is an, a, an agreement increasingly on the populist right with the populist left that the system itself is not worth saving, that, that anything going forward would need to be um, not just a corrective, but actually raise the, the system of our constitutional republic and replace it with something different. And on the right, this is taking some, some interesting forms um, that, you know, the, the enlightenment, the stamp of wrong-minded enlightenment thinking on our constitution um, was always had it taking us into the wrong direction. It's what enabled sort of the tech takeover that we're all grappling with right now. And on the left, it's this idea that we are um, irredeemably stamped with the, you know, the the Kendi, like you were saying, and as the sort of the, the Kendi-ish problems with the country that we're, we're irredeemably stamped with racism, um, that we are not exceptional in any sense, except for having been exceptionally capitalist and exceptionally capitalist and imperialist. Um, and that I don't think is historically accurate. And we've talked about this. I've done full podcasts with your wonderful husband, Jarrett, about this. I don't think that's historically accurate. Um, but it does really inform the worldview of the populist left. So if you can't agree that there's something worth preserving here in the United States, I think as much as we can find agreement on the, the folly of wokeism, as much as we can find agreement on antitrust issues, as much as we can find agreement on tech, as much as we can find agreement on the failures of the elites in the military, you can go down the line. As much as we can find agreement and consensus and uh, you know shared ground there, if you can't cobble together a serious coalition of people that believe this country is worth preserving and there there is something exceptional about this country, um, which by the way is so common in other countries. <laughs> I mean, we act like American exceptionalism is unique to the United States and it's uniquely nationalist or even ethno-nationalist. It's not, um, you know, in other countries there's immense pride and there is a feeling that, you know, France is exceptional. And again, you could keep going down the line. Um, but if we can't come up with that in our country, which, by the way, is exceptional and is the greatest force for good um, that, you know, has ever existed on this planet as in terms of countries, I just don't see how that coalition can possibly accomplish anything um, fundamental or substantive. So you, I guess my big question for you is, when you advance this idea is I think that's true among people maybe in our circles who are way too focused on sort of the minutia of ideology. And this has been a critique of mine of, of the new right in some ways, I think they transform what are essentially political impulses um, into grand theory mm -hmm. that, uh, I don't know, the, le the lesson that I took as opposed to maybe, um, and, and I count many of these people as friends, um, like Sorab Ahmari or, or some of the more new right folks, the lesson that I took from 2015, 2016, and the last, the years since then has been that actually the American public is much less ideological than I thought they were um, in the same way that I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think that it's in, inconsistent to post huge numbers for wanting to get out of Afghanistan and not wanting to see America sort of humiliated in this way, um, in this disorder, I think there is a middle ground there. And I think actually most Americans have that more pragmatic impulse about foreign policy. I think that's kind of true about politics as well, even where I totally disagree with it, right? So um, 
is there the possibility, for example, that we could truly clean house in essentially a populist wave that includes some elements of the left and right? I mean, it has happened before in American history, as much as we revere the founders, um, and I, I do revere the founders, and uh, after sort of that first generation had moved on, um, had either gotten old or passed away and had removed themselves from politics, there was this feeling that there was a uniparty in Washington and that the same people had been in charge for 30 years um, and that they were out of touch with the problems of this young and growing country, which is what swept the Jacksonian revolution, which was a populist revolution in many ways, into power. And I mean, similarly, FDR being the most popular president in modern American history, right, uh, won four elections, um, largely by tapping a sort of populist wave that felt that post-Great Depression, a, a consensus in Washington between both parties was not um, not serving the American people. And then I, I think the Reagan revolution was also in many ways a populist revolution, which is f funny because some of the new right folks tend to forget that, but it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was um, initially in the eighties, it was a reaction exactly to a, a period of time that while I think ours is worse because the institutional rot is so much worse, does seem to have a whole lot of parallels, right? That this uh, feeling of malaise, the seventies malaise, right? Um, under Jimmy Carter, it does seem to have a whole lot of parallels right down to, you know, photographs of, of helicopters lifting Americans out of uh, foreign countries after long and failed wars. Um, I, I, I don't, I guess I don't think it's impossible. Like I, I think it's impossible to, to seem together in many ways, the, the intellectual threads here uh, between say, what is the old Chomskyite left um, anti-woke Chomskyite left. Don't forget that Chomsky was one of the people who signed that Harper's letter, by mm -hmm. the way, worrying about the impacts on free speech. Mm -hmm. um, it's the only time, first and only time I've ever agreed with Noam Chomsky. Um, well, also about the media. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I think this, anyway, we won't get into that, but um, I, I, I still think it's possible to, all I can say that is as a fiscal conservative myself, I would definitely worry about somebody with the economic platform of Bernie Sanders running on a make America great again, kind of cultural value, because I think that combination actually could win. I don't oh, yeah. know. That's what the new left misses. Yeah. I, I think there probably are, is more overlap. There might not be overlap between like Chomsky and Sarah Bakhmari, but there is overlap. I mean, what, I, I'm wondering what you think about that. Do you, th do you think it's possible that there could be essentially a non-ideological overlap that just says, you know, uh, let's disagree about universal health care. Fine, I'll give you that chip. But we have to throw these people out of power. We have to throw the pe people out of power who have made these decisions for the last 30 years. Because, again, they're not just ideologically opposed to us. They're incompetent. Yeah, so I think you're completely right to suggest that um, love of country is broader in the public than it is among elites. Um, I, I also think disillusionment, as I said earlier, is, is broader than uh, elites on the right or I mean, yeah, I guess some people on the right recognize. Um, but I would say that the reason uh, a Bernie Sanders mega platform would work is because it does really tap into people's sense of hope. Um, and hope is so important and powerful and it can be something that, um, it can be something that fuels patriotism and, and love of country. And it should be something that does that because we do have the tools, whether you're on the left or the right or the populist left or the populist right, we absolutely do have the tools, um, to, to make change in this country. It's just a matter of mustering the political will, the cultural will to use them. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really difficult. And I guess it's... <sighs> Yeah, I mean, so you said something really interesting just now, which was there was the photographs of the Vietnam War, the the televised aspect of the war and how that shaped opinion and how that shamed, it shaped sentiment about the country and sentiments about leadership. Um, and I, I think we get myopic and um, not you, I don't mean to say this about you, I think that 
the political sort of chattering class, um, we get so focused on the now. I kind of see this all as the same, like in the scope of history, the same populist, I don't know, the same human adjustment to uh, the rapid acceleration of technology. Um, and, you know, we talk about, we, we speak so reverently of FDR's fireside chats. Well, those were novel because radio was a fairly novel technology. Um, this, is, this is like, we're dealing in the scope of human history with really, really, really new um, ways of being a human being. Like just what it means to live daily life as a human um, has changed if you're somebody in the West dramatically, not just in the last 10 years, because it has, but also in the last hundred years. Um, and America being sort of the superpower that came to global dominance at a time when tech was changing so quickly is sort of being seen as the leader, right? We're like the standard bearer of what it means to live a good life in this era of human history. And that was going just fine uh, until sort of recently. And there have been moments where, you know, the, there's a crack, you know, and you can look at the Depression era. You can look at uh, the 70s, certainly the 70s. Uh, there's so many parallels between uh, the, the Reagan revolution um, and the, you know, today, what we're seeing happen today. Um, and yeah, right, right now as well, we're just like, we have this, this system that has maximized human freedom in relationship to a stable government. Um, just about better than anything I can think of, or I'm sure that you, that you can think of as well. And it's, it's being tested by this technology that is so brand brand new and so dramatic in the changes that it creates um, to human life. Um, so it's in, so, in some respect, I think we lose sight of what a major adjustment we're trying to make and how blessed we are to be making that adjustment um, in largely in Western civilization, but particularly here in the United States, where we we have the freedoms that we do um, and the, the level of comfort, material comfort that we have. And as that material comfort, I think, becomes less and less satisfying um, as secularism rises and religiosity declines, the materialism becomes less and less comforting. Um, we'll either soothe ourselves with the metaverse and become less and less human, or we'll, you know, soothe ourselves with religion and community and sort of find a way to be human in this new world um, and to do it in a more healthy way. So I guess I've recently just tried to think of things from a more 300,000 foot perspective, because, you know, you can, Monday morning quarterback and quibble about different military decisions that were made in Iraq and Afghanistan and in our economy. And you can go on down the line, but we're all sort of seeing through the glass dimly right now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just hard to get distance from the moment. And I know that I sound like I'm, I'm rambling, but I think that's because so much of this is uncertain and it is rambling and we are kind of in the fog of war with new technology. Um, and so none of this is easy. I don't think Joe Biden made any easy decisions. I think he made some really bad decisions, but I don't think they're easy ones. I don't think George Bush made many easy decisions. I think he made some really bad ones. Um, but I see this, I guess I try to see this all in the, the broader context um, because, you know, even military technology has changed immensely. We are now subjected to the, the horrors of governments around the world in a way that we never were before and in a way that makes intervention a whole lot more tempting. And war has changed to the point where you can launch an attack via, via airplane that can do immense damage. Um, and that was not possible. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't do things so dramatically so quickly from different parts of the world um, until very recently. So all of that is changing and we're just, I think, adjusting to it. Yeah, it certainly feels, especially I think for 90s kids uh, like us, that we have been forcibly reinserted uh, into into the stream of history. Um, yes. and, and it has been a, a bumpy ride to be sure. So I, I, think, I think you're right. I don't think we'll really know. It's very difficult to figure out where we're going um, when you're still in the middle of the ride. So we, mm -hmm. we will, I guess we'll be back in, in 10 years to, 
to talk <laughs> about what what this moment meant. But um, Emily, thank you so much for coming back on to High Noon. Um, and thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.